Hi, welcome to the theory of the postdoc evolution, the podcast from the Postdoctoral Development Center at Queen's University Belfast. This episode 28 features an online panel discussion recorded in June 2023. It is chaired by Dr. Lisa Douglas, a postdoctoral researcher from the School of Pharmacy, who talks to Dr. Deborah Cox, Managing Director at Lagan Valley Scientific, Dr. Billy Hunter, Senior Marine Chemist at the Agri-Food and Bioscience Institute Northern Ireland, and Dr. Suha Dadu, Senior Scientist Analytical R&D at Pfizer. We'll kick off with Dr. Deborah Cox, if that's okay. I'll give a very brief introduction. She is currently working as the Principal Investigator and Managing Director in Lagan Valley Scientific's Turf Clinic which aims to support the immunity industry in identifying and managing turf pests and diseases. So thank you so much for joining us, Deborah. I just start off with a really general question to hear a bit more about you. What is your academic background and what was your PhD about? Okay, so I do a very different job to what I originally trained. I suppose going back academically, I would have started my undergrad in Limey 2002 two uh, I believe so a long long time ago and that was in forensic science so I've really started my career looking at DNA and how to identify individuals and I suppose working with DNA has really been a, a theme all through my career so I've been really working on basic things like PCRs for a very long time and more recently moved towards things like next generation sequencing. And so it's really been a bit of an evolution along, alongside technologies just as it's really developed. Yeah, started in a very, very different place to, to a turf clinic. And my PhD, again, a very different field. It was looking at osmotic stress in plants through a very specific stage in development throughout germination. The key Thing I was looking at was how to identify genes involved in that process. So it was basically an association study, very repetitive. That was with Dr. Fu Chen Liu, so um, in the School of Biological Sciences. And I really did have a great time throughout, throughout those years. Very challenging, but very rewarding. I was really interested whenever I was reading your bio to hear that you had started off with forensics. And I was reading that you had worked at the Scottish Police Service Authority and LGC Forensics. Um, so I just wondered if you, how did you find your time there? Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I, I loved it. I think throughout my, my undergrad, I spent a lot of time developing relationships with people and just trying to, to be around people that I aspired to be like. I, mean, I, I just wanted to be on CSI. <laughs> you know, it was one of these TV shows at the time. Well, that's not really true, but I'm just saying that it was just one of these things that I really put a lot of effort into to try and build myself up to being a forensic science. And I eventually got there. Um, it, it took a number of years and my first job actually wasn't in forensic science. It was just in Scottish water. So I was looking at performing routine um, diagnostic tests in a laboratory just to get accreditation experience. So performing tests which meet a certain standard so it's, it's a universal standard because without that it's very difficult to get your foot through the door in a forensic lab because their procedures are really very rigorously evaluated you have to go through a lot of hoops a lot of paperwork so it gets you in 
in the frame of mind of doing that. The number of different things that come through the door in a forensic lab really does blow your mind. So you can pick up DNA from just about everything. There's some more challenging things that come through the door, but I worked in scene of crime for the majority of my time at LGC. And very commonly you got things like food. So like loaves of bread, blocks of cheese, I mean, you name it, lollipops, a lot of food items. I guess people got hungry when they did break in. But yeah, a very, very rewarding career, but again, just really focused upon DNA and how to identify people. And then I worked with the specialist team. So looking at things like mitochondrial analysis, familial DNA testing and animal identification. Again, very, very varied, but kind of keeping within the theme of DNA analysis overall. Yeah, that's really interesting. I can definitely relate to wanting to be on CSI. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And like you mentioned before, you, you did end up pursuing a PhD in quite a different field than what you were trained in originally. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you found that transition and were there any skills that transferred well between the two? Uh, yeah, funny story. I, I originally actually applied to Queen's a very long time ago to do a different PhD than what I ended up doing. It was actually with the same supervisor. It was with Fuchan, but um, the funding for doing lots and lots of sequencing was not supported by Adele scholarships. So the original plan was to look at basically alternative splicing and how plants cope with stress with different poly A tails. But I ended up doing an association study in essentially the same bioassay, I would say for 18 months of that, but it, it allowed me to develop skills with patience more than anything else. And just to appreciate that there's actually a lot that you can learn through patience and just repetitive skills. And I don't regret any of that. We got some beautiful peaks in our association study. But it, it was a long grind and actually the research is still ongoing now. Sometimes projects just take an awful long time and I actually didn't publish anything from my PhD. Sometimes that just happens, but I was very lucky in my postdoc life to have published with some great researchers afterwards. Yeah, a, a very different field looking at plants and stress, but again, sticking with that theme of DNA all, all throughout, just from a different angle looking more at RNA and expression analysis. Absolutely. Thank you for that. That's great. So then in your introduction, I mentioned your role at the Turf Clinic. I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about that. Could you tell us a bit more about your role? I do everything. <laughs> Running a business is hard. There, there's a lot more involved than just the day-to-day -day lab experience, which most people maybe on, on this all are more familiar with. You have to think about finance, you have to think about regulations, your all of your paperwork, your waste, all of the things which probably I took for granted throughout my, my, my earlier stages of my career. But a typical day like today, for example, I've got some samples in, so I receipt them, I would start the process of them, but it's a lot of consultation as well. Essentially, I'm a bit of a problem solver. People would come to me and say, my, my turf is in decline. Can you help? And the area where I really specialize in is in plant parasitic nematodes. So these are microscopic worms, which invade the root system mainly and cause a lot of stress in the turf. And so sometimes these can cause unwanted visual symptoms on highly managed turf areas. 
I basically help guide people through reverting the, the decline that they can see or try to help them manage the nematodes in the long run. Again, a little bit different and a little bit of a step away from DNA analysis, but this is where the other side of the business comes in, where it's independent research projects. So some people might come to me and say, well, I have this product. We know that from a visual perspective, it, from a turf manager's perspective, it, it, it does what they want. It can help, I suppose, change the, the aesthetics of the turf, but they want to understand the biology or they want to understand gene expression changes and how their product actually works. And just as an example, a couple of weeks ago, I finished a project on Arabidopsis to look at gene expression changes to try and understand what changes actually happen in the plant to, to help describe to, to, to clients, basically, of the manufacturers of that product, what it does and how it functions, how it can actually benefit them. A few R&D projects go alongside that, but obviously not too many because I am one person. Getting the balance between those two things, it, it usually works, but it's through 20 odd years of learning to manage time. Not always perfect, but usually okay. Thank you so much. Well, it definitely sounds like a multifaceted role. This question mm -hmm. is probably quite apt. Apart from your role, what other role could postdocs or PhDs or anyone who's listening aspire to? in your sector? Well, actually, I work with a lot of companies who employ PhD level candidates because they want people with technical knowledge. So especially in like technical sales or in especially in product development, a lot of these big companies like Envu or ICL, you know, they, they have their own R&D departments. You know, if it's something that you're thinking about to move into industry, there's most certainly research level candidates that do get employed by big companies. So you're not restricted just to university life. There's there's other options for you. And you can also think about, you know, if you have a certain skill set that people would pay you for, you could do what I did and just start your own business and, you know, just just take it to a different level depends on your skill set and overall experience I would say but the world really is your oyster. Great thank you well I'll let you step down from the hot seat for now um, <laughs> and we will move on to Dr Billy Hunter so thank you for joining us Billy. Billy Hunter is the senior marine chemist at the Agri-Food and Bioscience Institute Northern Ireland where his role is to act as principal investigator and project lead for projects focusing on the chemistry of the marine environment and how this impacts fisheries and environmental standards. First question, can you tell us a bit more about your academic background and what your PhD was about, please? Hello, I'm Billy Hunters. I, in terms of my academic background, I did an undergraduate degree, started that in 2002 in marine biology. So I've kind of shifted fields through my time. I spent a year working as a technician at the UK National Facility for Scientific Diving in Oban, and then spent some time, spent a year ghost editing a book before I started my PhD. My PhD was in deep sea biology, so it was looking at, and there was a shift then towards chemistry, so it was in the, essentially around the chemistry of deep sea sediments, and I was looking at uh, carbon sequestration and storage back before anybody cared about carbon sequestration and storage. Uh, so I did that at the University of Aberdeen. And then I did a series of postdocs in various places. 
So I took a, I, I spent two years in Vienna on a Marie Curie fellowship working in alpine streams, looking at how soil erosion affects the chemistry of stream water and the, the, the transport of carbon again through those streams. Spent some time then, three years as a, as a Labourham fellow at Queen's and I've sort of been in Northern Ireland since then. So I've been in Northern Ireland since 2014 and I've had a various roles. I've been in the current role since 2020. So prior to this, I was a lecturer at Ulster University for a number of years. Uh, so I, I made the jump from academia into government fairly recently. Great. Thank you. Can you tell us more then about your current role as senior marine chemist, please? Yeah, sure. So it's fairly varied. Typical day can include anything from report writing around uh, data that we're collecting to planning for cruises. So I currently manage a program of eight research cruises a year. So I have a team of about, I have a team of six people that typically go out in those cruises. Um, and I act as chief scientist for between two and three of them per year and then delegate. So part of the role will be involved in sort of planning for that and then running when we're at sea, running the cruises and then collecting the, collating the data that comes in, analyzing that data, some of that data where you're, you know, working with colleagues by there in academia or within other, other government institutes to write papers and write reports, particularly around climate change. You know, one of the key things that I'm involved in is looking at the chemistry and also sea temperatures in the Irish Sea and in the, the, the northern Irish parts of the, the Atlantic. So we have long-term temperature time series. And we feed that into a system called the IROC, so the IC's report on ocean climate. That then feeds to the IPCC eventually. And we have reports that go to intergovernmental or other intergovernmental organizations. So there's a lot of, a lot of reporting and then dealing with requests from policymakers. So the policy leads within the Department for the Environment and also uh, DEFRA in the UK. And we would have requests for advice and information that we would then have to respond to. Great. So just on working with policymakers, how do you find combining your research with working with these working groups, policymakers, and do you find it rewarding that that might then enable real change? Yeah, I think that's one of the really exciting things about the work I do is that coming from an academic side where you, you spend so much time trying to think about how you can have impact with your work. In my current role, you're, I'm directly feeding into the, the development of UK, the UK and even European policy around uh, environmental regulation. I guess one of the key things is that I was involved in the development of the UK marine strategy. So the program of measures, what we measure as indicators of environmental change and how they, that's changed since Brexit, because there's an opportunity to allow us to be a little bit more sensitive to the, the situation with the UK be, being a set of islands. It, working with the policymakers, most of the most of my colleagues on the policy side come from a an academic background as well so they generally will have phds they have an understanding of the the environment so it's a it's a very intellectually stimulating and supportive 
environment because we all recognize the, the importance of the science and there is good support. There are good support networks there and there's a, there's a, there's a real openness to get access to the scientific data and to integrate that into policy. Great. All sounds really um, important. And I'm sure there's lots of people listening um, today who might be interested in working in a similar role and being able to reinforce change through policy. So similar question, what roles would be available for someone who's interested in getting into that area? There's uh, quite a wide variety of roles, both scientific roles within organisations like AFBI, um, CFAS in England and, and Marine Scotland in Scotland, who would be our, our sort of partner agencies. And then there are more policy-focused roles within the likes of DERA, DEFRA in England, so the, the actual departments, and the regular, regulatory agencies like the Environment Agency. And all of these organisations are, are actively looking for people with PhDs and a good background in environmental environmental science or food science in, in many cases, or agricultural science, because it helps what they require is the, the expertise in and the analytical the analytical training that you get through your PhD in terms of taking information from different sources and synthesizing that and produce and being able to work the tight deadlines and produce reports so having those higher level skills even the general skills that you acquire through your phd and postdoc are really really important and that's recognized it's recognized right across the board i would even say that it's recognized by the the politicians and when we deal directly with the politicians i know that you, you can sometimes get a very sort of negative impression of politicians when you listen to like the news and you 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 hear the sound bites that come across but generally all the politicians that i've encountered even the ones that you wouldn't expect to be very pro-science are very thoughtful and actually very interested to hear what we've got to say and generally are quietly supportive of the work that we do even if they're perhaps not so publicly uh publicly supportive it's important to remember when working across the public policy side that you know many of the politicians there's the theater of politics and then the work that they actually do yeah no it's great to hear that from from another perspective thank you so much billy um we'll move on now to get a bit of an introduction from dr suha dadu so she's a senior scientist with pfizer uk and she uses process analytical technology to support Pfizer's portfolio in the transition to continuous manufacturing for oral solid dosage forms. So thank you for joining us, Suha. Thank you. I'm going to ask you the same question I've asked everybody to kick us off. Can you tell us a bit about your academic background and what was your PhD about? Yeah, sure. So I did an undergrad in pharmacy. So um, I was a pharmacist. Then I noticed that I have, you know, a passion toward research. I don't want just to work in pharmacy or, you know, to dispense drugs. So I uh, obtained an MSc in pharmaceutical technology, and then I moved on and completed my PhD in pharmaceutical sciences and technology. Uh, in my PhD, I focused on oral solid dosage forms. So I know now there are a lot of trends, for example, for nanotechnology and other stuff, but still the main dosage forms that are available in the market are oral solid dosage forms, mainly tablets. So in my PhD thesis, I focused on 
understanding, you know, have a fundamental understanding of how to make tablets. So I combined theoretical chemistry. I used molecular dynamic simulation, for example. I used as well simulators in the lab for the actual tablet press, just to understand the compaction and compressibility dynamics in the tablet. I used uh, Raman spectroscopy for, of, and from that point, I got to the postdoc stage where I was employed to do inline Raman analysis during the process. So now uh, everybody knows that we live in the Industry 4 revolution now since the beginning of 21st century. Now, uh, pharma uh, was the last to join this revolution because of the regulatory nature of this industry. So we know in petrochemical and other types of industry, they have now the for people who don't know the fourth revolution, it's continuous manufacturing. So the manufacturing is moving from batch, the traditional batch manufacturing to continuous manufacturing. So pharma was the last to join because of the regulatory aspect, because all the products are for human use. My main role in the postdoc was just to use continuous manufacturing rather than batch manufacturing and enable the analysis during this process by using inline monitoring, which, which is called PAT, Process Analytical Technology. So in my postdoc, I focused on process analytical technology for continuous manufacturing. And from that point, I was offered my job here as Pfizer. So in Pfizer as well, there is now a transition from batch to continuous manufacturing, and I'm supporting this transition by doing process analytical technology. Great. Thank you so much. This next question is probably coming from a more personal place because our backgrounds are a little similar and that I also originally trained as a pharmacist. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about your journey from having a clinical background, working as a pharmacist, to now working in the pharmaceutical industry and how have you found that? Uh, now, as I mentioned, I really liked research and that was the trigger for me to start my postgraduate journey to obtain my master's and PhD. Now, of course, we still need pharmacists and, uh, you know, we need uh, experienced pharmacists to work in the pharmacy and dispense drugs. But for me, I, I felt that I want to be part of the team that develop those drugs that are available in the market. So that's why I, I decided to move toward research and do the be part of the development phase of drug products. Yeah, uh, I started by doing a master's, PhD, postdoc, and then during my postdoc, I like had, you know, a moment that do I need to carry on in academia and publish? Now, I've already published articles from my PhD and my postdoc, or I want to really be a part of the team that can develop drug products that will be available in the market and can benefit so uh, a lot of patients and people. So I made a decision I want to make this move, especially that I spent a lot of time in academia between master's, PhD, and I did three years postdoc. So I told myself I need a transition now to see, to like challenge myself, test my boundaries, see how I will perform. I performed good. I can say that I performed really good in academia, all the publications and everything. So I told myself I need to really challenge myself and see how I will perform in industry and different setting. So that's what triggered me uh, to really apply and look outside of academia. And yeah, I was offered this job as a senior scientist at Pfizer. Brilliant, thank you very much. Can you tell us a bit more about your current role? Maybe what does a typical day look like or what are your main responsibilities? Okay, so as a senior scientist, my typical day is I do different roles. 
first of all, I am a lead, a project lead. So if any project that needs PAT support and continuous manufacturing, I can be lead on that project. So I have my own projects that I lead and I can uh, assign people to do uh, tasks for this project. I as well support other, other projects where they need PAT support. So any other projects that are using continuous manufacturing platform, I can support by consultation or uh, reviewing, for example, data or planning experimental work. I author parts of regulatory documents. So for example, if we have a product that needs to go to clinical phase and need approval, for example, from because we are an international company. So if we have a product in US, it's FDA here in the the UK, it's MHRA. In the European markets, it's EMA. So different regulatory bodies, we need to author documents for approval. I don't want to go to the jargons, the CMC, IND, NDAs, regulatory documents. So I author parts that are relevant to the work I did as well. And we have, of course, a lot of meetings, cross-sites meetings with our colleagues in the US. We have as well manufacturing sites in Germany. So we have cross-functional and cross-sites meeting to just keep up to date with our PAT. So to just, you know, keep on top of my specialism, specialist that I do here in Pfizer, which is PAT. This is my typical day. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for that little bit of insight. Sounds like you really enjoy your work and you're passionate about yeah. it. So I wonder how you picture your career progressing now. Do you, would you like to stay in a similar role or do you have plans to branch out? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So back in the days, it was like you have a plan. I want to be, for example, my plan was to be an academic, be a lecturer, you know, and a professor. Now we are in a fast moving era, you, you, you know, you change your plans frequently depending on the market needs, depending on new emerging, new emerging technologies. For example, when I did my pharmacy degree, there was not yet this continuous manufacturing, you know, concept in pharma, let's say at least. Yeah, uh, the first time I worked on continuous manufacturing was four years ago when I was a postdoc. Previous to that, I've never imagined that I will be doing PAT, you know, and continuous manufacturing. So we are really in a fast changing era. I can't tell you if this is what I will be doing for, you know, my the whole of my career, but I can see in the nearest future. So second, uh, let's say four to five years from now. Yeah, I think I, I will keep doing what I'm doing because really I enjoy it. And as I told you, it's now that trend in pharma to move to continuous. So I want to be part of this transition. Yeah, absolutely. You're right when you say it is quite fast-paced. Careers can change. There's lots of options out there for people now as well. Yeah. So could you maybe give us a bit of insight into what other roles, apart from the role that you do, that would be available in a company like Pfizer or similar companies? Now, for people who did, for example, uh, postgraduates, I think most of the audience are PhD or postdocs here. So they will have, if they would like to carry on with research. So the best that can suit is R&D. So there are different positions in R&D depend on the level of experience between scientists, senior scientists, principal scientists. So it really depends on how experienced are there and the technical skills that they have. So it will define which stage in their career they are. If, for example, we have QC, quality control, so people can join as quantity to do quality control stuff. There is quality assurance as well if they don't want to carry on with research. We have more regulatory rules. So, for example, for me, I author parts of the regulatory documents, but then there are people who review and make sure that they meet the standards and they do all the communication with the regulatory bodies. So there are more rules for regulatory based, for example. So there are wide 
really wide range of roles that they can join. It depends on their aspiration and what they enjoy more doing. That's great. So yeah, I think it's good to get um, that insight into the broad broad roles that people can do. It's not just yeah. senior scientists, sure. for example, there are other options there. So it's great for people to be aware of that. So thank you very much. We're going to move into our second part of our interview today. So thank you so much, everyone, for giving us such a great introduction to your careers to date. This next part, we'll be talking more about your transition out of academia and, and how that was. I'll just ask the questions and anyone who feels that they have something to offer, please just um, go ahead. So first question then, how difficult was it for you to secure a position after your postdoc or PhD? So did you apply for many roles before being successful? And is there anything you particularly learned from that process? I guess the insight, I've kind of, I guess I've transitioned out of academia twice now. So I think it's just interesting maybe to give a little bit of context to that. So the first time after my second postdoc, I was approaching the end of the contract and my wife was expecting a baby at the time. And I moved in across into uh, professional support at the university, basically through the redeployment scheme. I just sort of like to highlight the fact that, you know, there, there are options there, even when you don't necessarily have something lined up and it perhaps isn't something that you would expect to, or may, you may not think that it fits into your, your long-term career plan, but I learned so much about the, the 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 workings of the university administration and actually about how to manage staff and manage projects by working across in the sort of in the research office at the university even if it was only for six months so you know it's good to kind of manage your own expectations and um you know take what take the opportunities that come great thank you billy Edwards, do you have something you want to say as well? Both speakers just made some excellent points, just to, kind of just to summarize, but the progress that you make is not always linear. It's so sometimes the jobs that you take, they might not necessarily be like your dream job, but just to appreciate that you will obtain some skills, which will definitely be trans, uh, you know, transferable. Just as an example, when I left my first undergraduate course, I I did have some experience in the SPSA labs, but I don't think that it was enough. And so I really wanted some experience in an ISO accredited lab. And so I really worked very, very hard to get some experience for a couple of years before actually joining the dream job. And even though I thought that was my dream job at, at the time, just something that Sarah said, um, you know, your, your expectations change, you know, what you want from life can change. And so even though I had this wonderful job and I, I appreciate every moment of that job, I realized I wanted something different and you're allowed to change your mind as many times as you want. But one thing that I did learn across obtaining multiple jobs is how long it takes to build relationships with people and to, it's just been really beneficial for me to reach out to people that you maybe want to work with and keep making contact and build a relationship over a long period of time. It really does make a huge, huge difference. Not that you're ever guaranteed a job, but you can learn about lab culture and 
make sure that it's a great fit for you because it'll make that transition a lot easier when you have an understanding of what you're getting yourself into. You can't know everything. You never know everything until you're there. But that's something that really helped me is to build relationships with people just that you want to be like or a lab that maybe you want to join. Just get to know them really well. That's really great advice. Thanks. Thanks, Deborah. So Heather, do you have something you'd like to add? Yeah, I think uh, it's better to have, you know, a plan so you know what you want to apply for or what, you know, career path you want. So can you tailor your skills? And as Deborah mentioned, make connections and contacts. It's really important. So I know that PhD and postdocs can go to a lot to attend a lot of conferences so they can use those to make contacts and to be visible by giving, for example, oral presentations and make contacts over there. I think using the resources, so I believe in Queen's students, PhD students and postdocs have accounts on LinkedIn Learning. They can use it really. There are a lot of courses that they can develop their soft skills. They can use these to develop. And as I told you, tailor their skills. So for example, if in the market now there is there is a trend to do Python, so it's required in a lot of job positions, for example. So it really would be beneficial to learn a little about coding and Python and how to use it for data analysis, especially here in Pfizer. It's really very required for people who want to join for data analytical rules or, for example, in my role, PAT or continuous manufacturing. Yeah, so just to tailor their skills to the need of the market and the position they are looking for, make connections and use the resources available for them. Brilliant. Thank you all so much for that. It's great to have that insight and the importance of sort of networking, building that network and building those relationships is really, really important. So thank you. So all of you have worked in a mixture of academic roles and roles outside academia. I wonder what you have found the main differences between the two to be. And I think sometimes people maybe have the idea that researchers in industry or the public sector have maybe less freedom to research what they'd like or take things in what direction they'd like. I wonder, is that true? And what's your experience of that? I think my first comment would be to say that the grass is not greener on the other side ever it just isn't I think that in in terms of freedom I think I have more freedom now than I ever did before because I'm doing things the way that just makes sense to me that that, that's just my way of doing things but I've I've had job roles where I've just had my workload handed to me I haven't really had to think about it and you actually get a lot of mental freedom from that it might sound a little bit silly but when you don't have to think about absolutely everything there's different pressures, there's different responsibilities and different levels of pressure that you'll experience through your career in different roles. And sometimes you might take on more than what you bargain for in certain roles, especially if you're trying to prove yourself to get promotions and things. Um, I, I, I found it harder to find promotions in civil service way roles that I had. I've worked for the civil service twice. It's basically the same story. There, there is opportunities there, but they are they're quite difficult. You have to you have to work pretty hard. In terms of academia, some some people stay at a postdoc level for a very long time. You know, you can keep learning and reinventing yourself and gaining new skills. You get to work on different projects. I mean, that's really exciting. One of the most exciting things because you're at this level where. You don't necessarily have too much pressure. You know, you don't have to find grant funding and things like that. You get to do the fun, cool work 
it really depends what you want to do. And as I say, what you want will change over time. If someone said to me 20 years ago, you're going to run your own business, I would have said, you're crazy. I'm not going to do that. I want to be a lecturer. So things definitely change because I realized that actually being a lecturer isn't quite for me. But it took me a long time to really realize that and speaking to people who are currently doing the role that you think you want. This is why I'm saying I, I like to speak to people and build relationships because it, it can sometimes just open your eyes and you might realize that the job that you want isn't what you thought it was. So that's my thoughts on that. Thanks, Deborah. Billy, do you have any insight on the differences between working in, uh, working in academia and working outside of yeah, I think just to follow up on Deborah's point there, having been a lecturer and then moved to the public sector, one thing I would say, if you're thinking of pursuing the academic path and staying as a, you know, looking for a lecturing post, make sure that you actually want to teach because that is what 60% of the job is. And no one can tell can tell you anything different you know when you when you're doing 20 hours of lectures in a week and you have that amount of face time with students that's intense and it's a hell of a hard hard job to do to do that week week in week out through a whole semester it's it is very intense i i know that universities uh, will claim that they have all sorts of schemes for early career but they will also hand you a big teaching load at the at the start of the semester, and it will depend on what uh, your call, what the more senior and established colleagues in the department have. So I think that's one of the things I find that coming into the, the 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 public sector, I have a huge amount of freedom in terms of actually the the amount of uh, the direction that I take the work and the the way I develop projects. And it's really nice not to have to apply for funding to pay for consumables for a piece of equipment. You know, I, I can apply for funding for the things that are important and all of those sort of consumable items that you might need to do your work are largely covered. Great, thanks Billy. Suha, have you any experiences you'd like to share? Yeah, just following on, I think even in academia, you don't have that freedom to do whatever you want. You are restricted with resources, with the research team that you have, the funding. And even for writing a funding, you need to tailor your you know, propo uh, proposal to meet what is it, it is required in the, uh, you know, uh, now in the funding and, for example, the councils that give the funding. So it's, I can't consider it 100% you know, uh, freedom for you even in academia. Now in, uh, in pharma, especially in R&D, we are research-based departments. So we do a lot of research. We have some sort of flexibility that is aligned with our portfolio and business. So if the research you are doing will support the business, the portfolio, the development of something, you have freedom. Even if we don't have, because still we lack the knowledge, for example, or the, uh, how much this research will give support the portfolio we have, we can do collaborations, so we have this flexibility to collaborate with academia, so we can nominate a university or a lab that do the research that we need to test, and if the results were promising, we can 
do this research in our uh, premises. So it's really quite flexible, as, as I told you, to support your role, to support development, to su support the wider image or the portfolio of the company. And we still have the option to do collaboration with academia for research that we are not quite sure if they will support our business. Thank you. It's really interesting to hear from all of you that you feel like you have either as much freedom or more in your current roles. And I guess it goes to say, like like Deborah said, um, start the grass is not always greener. So it's maybe a, a bit about really just thinking about what you want to, what you actually want to do, and what would be right for you, and and chatting to to other colleagues and mentors about that. So thank you everyone for your insight. I wanted to come back to something you said, Billy, as well. You were talking about how much teaching you have to do as a lecturer and making sure that you that's something you really want to do. I wonder, did you have much teaching experience um, in your postdoc years before you started lecturing? And if you did, do you have any advice for anyone on, on getting that important experience? Did I have much teaching experience? I had a little bit of teaching experience as a postdoc. So when I was at Queen's, I was doing maybe six hours of lectures a semester as a postdoc, which isn't that, it's not a huge amount. It's maybe one lecture a week for six weeks and then as a PhD student you obviously you know you have opportunities to demonstrate I would say if you want that teaching experience go and talk to the go and talk to the director of education in your in your uh, school and speak to, speak to them and put yourself forward you need to get a little bit of teaching experience to have that on your CV but you don't want too much because you don't want it to take away from your research. Once you have one line saying that you've delivered some lectures, that's probably enough in some respects. The other thing I'd say is really worthwhile is look at the, the advanced higher education accreditation and try to get, try to go ahead and do that because that's a big, that, that's a big help in terms of getting past the the sort of the essential criteria for any lecturing job to have that will get you to interview essentially. Oh, sound advice, thank you very much. Another question for all of you then, I wonder which skills you think that you developed during your time as an academic researcher that you use most in your current roles? There's a number of things, I guess the, the, the one big one is the project management skills. So having been a postdoc managing, even as a PhD student, you're managing your own project and you're managing that to very strict deadlines. As a postdoc, particularly as an independent postdoc with a fellowship, you're managing your own budget, you're managing your project, and you're following you're you're following all the kind of the reporting requirements for uh, for your funder. So that's a big help because coming into the public sector, it's all about reporting. You know, we are constantly having to report on the the finances and how we how we spend money we're constantly having to report on the progress the projects are making and even when it's it's when you you know you're you're only uh, a couple of months into the project you know you have this quarterly reporting cycle that you just have to constantly keep churning the the reports out which is one of the i guess one of the challenges in moving into a more civil service focused role is that you're then faced with the, the government bureaucracy yeah, absolutely. Project management skills are really important. Deborah, do you have any? So, uh, since I'm still working in R&D research earlier, so I can say that the technical skills I developed were very important for me to get in this role. 
as Bill mentioned, project management as well as a soft skill, uh, time management as well. Of course, supervising PhD and master students helped me a lot here because I'm leading projects here. So that was really helpful for me here. And communication skills, because here it's very cross-functional and cross-site, my role, I communicate, all as I told you, all the time with our colleagues in the US and in Germany. Yeah, the, those were the main skills that really helped me in my current role. Thank you. Sarah, did you have something you wanted to add? Probably just a reiteration of what's just being said with one addition. Definitely project management. Like Billy is absolutely on the money with that. It is just something that comes with practice and time, learning how to manage your time effectively and to manage a budget effectively are two key skills which you will definitely need as you progress through your career. Like when I was first learning about how to budget, I took my best case scenario and tripled it. And that's usually a, a decent enough starting point. But as I say, you'll always make mistakes at some point. You'll never get things 100%. You just have to do the best that you can. Again, talking about technical skills, like again, it's just something that comes with time and patience. But on top of that, finding your niche, like what you are personally really, really good at and for me, it's getting to the bottom or the root cause of a problem. And so I just find that that's what I can really help people with. I, I put everything that I had into the business at the time that's really paid off. But you really have to understand your key strengths and weaknesses. And that, that would probably be some of my advice just to think about what you're really, really good at. Because if you're naturally good at doing something, it's almost effortless. And then that pays off when it comes to your work-life balance because it doesn't really feel like work. Great, thank you so much. You mentioned there and you mentioned as well during your introduction that you have started your own company. So I wonder, what was your experience of that like? And do you have any advice for anyone who's listening today who might have ambition to start their own company? Yeah, I have no business experience prior to doing what I'm doing now. As I say, I've been really grateful to have an excellent bunch of mentors, friends, colleagues, former PhD fellow students, you know, to, to learn off and bounce ideas off. You have to know yourself really well and you do have to have not, not necessarily like a, a really super well detailed plan. I think I think one of my regrets is planning too much and spending far too much time thinking about what I'm doing rather than actually just doing it. You do need some finance behind you. As I say, whatever you think you're going to need, triple it. However much time you think you're going to need, just triple it because you never know what contingencies you're going to have to account for or emergencies. You want some extra money in the bank. I mean, you really want six months worth of wages just in case things don't go your way. Typically in business, if you make it to the two, three year mark, that's a really good sign. So my business is reaching its third birthday this year, which is really quite wild because the business was actually started well towards the middle of the pandemic, I suppose. And like I personally have no regrets. I have the most freedom that I've ever had. Yeah, there's just a lot of benefits that, that come from it. So, yeah, I guess my, my main advice would be to, to have a plan. It doesn't have to be a concrete plan. You can have flexibility in it. 
you do need some finance so you'll need to arrange for an accountant or just someone to give you maybe a little bit of advice on your finances and really find your niche they're the top three things I would say that's great thank you so much Deborah this is a question really for Billy for Billy but um, if anyone else has anything they'd like to add please feel free I just want to ask you talked about your experience as a lecturer so when in your sort of career journey did you start thinking about applying for lectureships start applying for lectureships and did you apply for many or what, what was your application process like I guess it was during my second postdoc that I started thinking about lectureships and applying for lectureships. And yes, I applied for quite a lot of them. I got interviews for quite a lot. And it turns out that I'm really, really bad at those sorts of job interviews. The one thing I would say is that I don't know if I was ever fully that committed to becoming a university lecturer. So I kind of, I followed this path and well-meaning mentors built me up because I was an independent fellow and I, I had the, the, these, you know, these prestigious fellowships that I should really be following an academic path and applying for lectureships. And I struggled the first time I left academia sort of emotionally with a sense of loss that I wasn't in that position. And I think that one of the things I would say is that then going back into academia and actually experiencing what life was like as a lecturer, it kind of, it really took the sheen off that idea for me. And I was much happier then to leave academia having experienced that because it's a lot of work. And the idea of the freedom that you, you know, you supposedly have and that the, the way that you can, it can be sold to you. It's not, the job is not, necessarily all those things there are elements of that I mean it, it's it's wonderful in some ways you know you you get to work with students and uh, there are so many positive experiences with the the freedom to try to conduct research in whatever whatever area that you're interested in but there's a huge amount of work and it is relentless at least you know you know the, the, there is real difficulty maintaining the work-life balance as a lecturer Great, thanks Billy. You've really led me in well to my next question actually because I wanted to ask about work-life balance for all of you, how, how, you're, how many hours you work a week and do you find your work-life balance better or worse than whenever you were in academia? I say all of you would be great to hear from you but maybe Suha do you want to start us off? Yeah sure. Uh, <laughs> now comparing to PhD and postdoc yeah I found the work-life balance now is better so the work uh, is 37 and a half work uh, hours a week you don't need there is of course in R&D there is no overtime maybe in the manufacturing sector sometimes if they need to run overtime there is overtime but for R&D there is no overtime so yeah it's fixed hours uh, we have good work-life balance there are a lot of even events and activities within the company just to you know rewind and to get people together and to just take time off from work and just communicate with other people. Yeah, for me, I'm enjoying my work-life balance here. Thank you very much, Suha. It's good to hear. Deborah, Billy, have you got anything to add? I can add something, yeah. I mean, similar to Suha, I would, you know, be working about 37 and a half hours a week in general. Now, that changes. There's need to travel to meetings and also there's the field work. So my role is seagoing, so I have to go to sea. Now that obviously has 
impacts on work-life balance because and the, you know that has impacts on my family who have to deal with dad being away and you know my, my wife has to deal with her partner being away for a week and the the fact that i'm not i'm absent when the kids are needing taking places and things like that but compared to academia where as a as an academic uh, marine scientist you still have the expectation to go to sea i'm paid for that so the 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 overtime that i do i'm paid for that that additional work so there is some there is at least some um some recognition that that carries extra costs for the family in terms of extra childcare costs and things like that. Great, thank you. What about you, Deborah? How's your work-life balance, especially having started your own company? <laughs> I suppose going back a, a few years now, when just just thinking about like a, an ordinary kind of nine to five, your nine to five is never or always it's not really a nine to five. Just that thinking back to being like a postdoc, it's so difficult to switch off. There is some carryover of that when you run your own business because it is your livelihood. You know, if the business goes down, you go down with it. <laughs> so you, it, it, it's not something which you switch off from, but it's easier to switch off from because I've I've kind of implemented processes and like workflows in the lab that run fairly efficiently. So I've worked out how to have enough clients, how to have enough projects and just manage my time okay. A lot of my a lot of my work I can't actually plan for because I, I have no control over when people might see turf decline. So if a, a football club or a golf course has a problem, or maybe they want to start a tracking project, they they send samples and you just have to deal with it. <laughs> so sometimes you can have unexpected workloads, which can sometimes be really quite dramatic and a little bit stressful, but it's stressful in a different way because you just want to help people. You know, you want to use your skills rather than to, to please people in, in a weird way. But I definitely think that I have more far more flexibility now than I ever did I still do a lot of traveling though I, I would do some site visits or companies might have done a research project with me and they want to help explain the results in simple terms to clients so that they understand and also so that the messages are not miscommunicated or that science isn't miscommunicated or over exaggerated this is something that is maybe a little bit unique to, to this industry, but people can blow out of proportion results. And so people would recruit me to go to places. So I do spend, just as Billy said, you know, a bit of time away from home, but I'm kind of lucky in a way I don't have children or anything like that to to, to think about. It's just my poor partner. <laughs> but um, yeah, he, he's very understanding. So I have, um, yeah, I'm just very, very grateful and very lucky, I suppose. But not everyone has that. Great. Thank you so much. That's really, really useful insight. So we're going to move on to the next part. Our postdoc showcase at Queen's this year has the theme of creating impact through collaboration. I have a couple of questions just for all of you about sort of the roles that collaboration and what impact that brings plays in your current work. So I'll just start off by asking about collaboration. Can anyone tell me a little bit about what role collaboration has in their current work? And is it different to, to how you experienced it in academia? Siha, do you want to start us? 
Yeah, no problem. For us now, I think in Pfizer, it's a bit different because we are international companies and we have sites all across the world. So usually what we do that if some resources is not available here in the UK, we will do this experiment or this research in our labs in the US or in the Germany, or we have as well in India and other countries. In the rare occasion, as I mentioned earlier, we'll, we want to test something or test, you know, a concept. We can do sometimes collaboration with academia. So we have available funding, for example, to support master students or undergrad projects. We have undergrad projects that come our sites as well. Now, a PhD, it's a bit challenging because it's long, you know, research, long commitment. So we try to, if we want to have a proof of concept to, you know, collaborate through master students, but we occasionally do support PhD. We have collaboration as well in some consortiums or those for highly technical people in a certain field. For, for example, if I, I, I know I don't know if anyone is aware in the CMAC Center, for example, or MMIC in uh, Scotland. So it's like collaboration between Strathclyde University and Big Pharma. So there is Pfizer, AZ, JSK. So we do such things that we bring all specialists together and we will have like annual events over there. And uh, yeah, we do fund uh, the projects over there. So we are parts of the funding uh, bodies. And uh, so those are the uh, sorts of collaboration we do with other industry and with universities as well. It's interesting to hear that you're, do you have your collaboration within industry and also with academia as well? So it's really interesting to hear. Deborah, Billy? I can give a little bit of insight from our side, which is that, you know, in many respects that the collaboration aspect is very similar in a public sector research organization as it is in academia. And we're very keen to collaborate with universities. So I supervise PhD students. I normally don't supervise that many PhD students because they they take a lot of time. But I would be supervising PhD students and master's students and we would be looking to collaborate with academic university partners in terms of a lot of projects because we have access to funding streams that the universities don't necessarily have access to. We have access to a lot of equipment and resources. The problem we have in the public sector is that we find it very difficult to recruit people, particularly for shorter term pieces of work, because there are headcount limits on the number of staff that we can employ. So we need to look for external partners that can recruit funding enough postdocs and research assistants and people like that that can actually deliver the work for us on projects. Collaboration for me is absolutely essential, but probably from a bit of a different perspective, just as an example, I receive samples from all over the world. I have definitely not got the experience or eyes for all pathogens that could potentially be developing in a sword. And so while I'm pretty good in a few areas, Sometimes if it's not something that's within my area of expertise, I really need to ask for second opinions or to collaborate with people to have a deeper understanding of what is actually going on to ultimately help people understand what the core issue is so that they can deal with it in the long run. Collaboration with people like agronomists or maybe entomologists or you know people who have got expertise in different areas who can basically add value to what I'm doing or I can add value to what they're doing 
it's more collaboration that way to to help people in terms of research though there, there's very few people who kind of do this the thing that I do and I actually reached out to a, a key collaborator a few before I actually started um, my own business and it just turns out that that was probably one of the best decisions I ever made like Kate she would be technically a competitor but she's really turned into a very close friend and colleague and collaborator and we would actually run or help run research projects they're very small projects not huge ones but they're really tailored towards delivering what clients need so that they can basically improve their agronomy programs in the long run so they're really quite bespoke things very small scale but very high impact so it's probably collaboration in a very different frame of light that I would be involved in but it's really critical very critical yeah it's interesting to hear like all of you speak about the importance of collaboration in your work and, and Deborah like you're saying even reaching out to someone who would technically be considered a competitor and how fruitful that can be if you're kind of open to have those collaborations is really yeah. And that was quite oh. scary, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is scary, but it's it's obviously been fruitful. So yeah, so I suppose it's the same kind of thing, you know. If it was potentially a collaborator, but like a rival lab, so to speak, you know, just from an academic's point of view, you know, you always want to produce the very best research papers that you can, and maybe you'd be competing with a very similar lab, you know, with what their frame of mind is and what their goals are. But sometimes some of the best research can really come out of putting your heads together and working together. And that's really what I've found. Maybe I've just been lucky, but from my experience, it was really worthwhile reaching out and putting our heads together and saying, well, what can we actually deliver that's just that little bit different and add some extra value? And it's really been worth it. Thank you so much. Okay. So we're coming up to the end of our time together. So I just want to move on to some final questions. So I'll put this question to all of you individually. So first one is, could you share with us the best piece of advice you were given during your career and why it was meaningful to you? Maybe you need a moment to think about that, but if anybody has something that springs to mind, please let us know. I think I have one thing I could perhaps, well, possibly two things that are I think the first one was that my first postdoc kind of boss told me basically that essentially that not to not to focus so much on the career trajectory, but to focus more on the jobs that you want to do and look for things that are of interest to you. I guess the second thing is sort of moving out of academia. Um, and it was, a, again, a colleague within academia mentored me that sort of put this across is it's actually worth sometimes spending a little money and getting a careers coach, like a consultant who can help you prep for interviews outside academia because going to civil service interviews are completely different to what you would expect in, in academia. And having that, you may pay a little bit of money, you know, it may be a hundred or 200 pounds for a couple of sessions with a, a couple of hours with a, with a, with, with, with a careers coach, but they are, they have expertise in preparing people for interview and they can help you to learn the interview technique to get through a civil service interview or a private sector interview. They can't guarantee success, but they can guarantee at least that you'll get a good, um, you make give a good, good account of yourself. 
absolutely really really useful advice because i'm sure the interviews for the different sectors are just so different so having somebody with that experience is going to be invaluable deborah so you have you anything little nuggets of wisdom to share i think it was my dad my dad always tell me that you need to love what you do as we mentioned earlier, we spend a lot of our time at work. So most of your day is at work. Most of your our life, we spend it at work. So it's really very important, I feel, for me, for your all of things, your career progression, your mental health, your, you know, your personality, everything is to enjoy what you are doing. Because if you are in an environment that doesn't support you or you are doing something, you are forced to do it, you don't like or enjoy it. It will be really affect your health, mental health. It will affect your career, even your performance at work. So I think really it's very important to love and know what you want. Yeah, definitely signed advice there, Suha. Deborah, do you have anything? Yeah, what Suha said just really resonated with me there as well. Um, I'm finding it difficult to to give just one line of advice. I think the most important thing that I've learned is actually not really advice, but it's more it's more the lesson of just uh, as she said just knowing yourself and like when I was leaving school I wanted to pursue forensic science and I remember sitting in the principal's office we had to go through this process and discuss what you were going to do and I remember he said well you shouldn't really go and do that because you didn't do you know you didn't do chemistry and it was it was a very heavy chemistry course it, it was one of the hardest times of my life it was it was a hard course but I was pretty good at art like I sold paintings when I was like 15 and he said oh, you know you should just go and do art it's what you're naturally good at I was like but it doesn't interest me it's not like the fire in my belly I went and I I struggled in the first two years of that undergrad course, but that taught me a very important lesson because I wanted to do it. And if you have the willingness and the drive to get it done, you will get it done. And so just knowing what you want to do and then finding that little bit of passion and sticking with it and having patience is probably the best lesson I've learned. Thank you so much. Just as we wrap up, there's maybe people on the call who are considering taking the leap and leaving academia to pursue a career in, in another sector without the industry or other. What, what one piece of advice would you leave them with based on your career progression to date? When I was thinking about starting my own business, I had no experience whatsoever. I was very lucky and I'm still so grateful to have really good mentors in my life so people who have experience in business people who I could say here's my business plan am I being an idiot just be really blunt with me am I being silly right now just to have people who are upfront and honest but experienced is really valuable and have as many of those as you can build good relationships with them know yourself really well is probably the best thing that I can say because you will you will learn your own limits and you'll learn what your strengths are and if you play to them there's no reason why you can't start your own business not not really there's funding available if if you don't have your own funds you can apply for funds you can you can start a business in so many different ways even like as a side hustle you know, so many people through the pandemic had to had to do this. You know, you have to be innovative. And if you, you're already 
you know, pursuing a PhD, you are innovative. It's just finding what your niche is and how you can exploit that. You do have to have a business plan. At the end of the day, a business is there to make money. It's not there for fun. And I suppose I'm still guilty of this in a way. I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds like a really cool project. We can do this. And then you think, well, how much is that actually going to cost? And then you realize, well, actually, okay, you need to calm your ambition down. But there's no reason why you can't do it. Just plan. Get some good mentors beside you who will support, who will really support you. Talk to your friends and family as well, because it's not just a journey which you will go through. It's a journey which everyone around you will go through too. I would say that I don't see my friends and family as much as I would like to, but the opportunities now are coming because of all of that time investment. I've done all the hard work. And so things are changing now, but it's a lot of effort up front. Great. Thank you. This is probably a nice question just to finish us off today. So what would you consider as the main factor when you wanted to decide about your next job or field? Was it the place, the experience, loving your job or anything else? I guess for me, it was very much about doing something that I enjoy doing. I enjoy problem solving. I enjoy field work and being out in the field. I learned very quickly the first time I left academ academia that I really don't like sitting in an office for very long. I get itchy feet and I like to be actively out doing things, either working in the lab or working in the field, pulling heavy things around, being outside. And I think that's it. Just find what it is that you enjoy about your current role and look for something that will meet those parts of the job that you like and give yourself time because as Sue has said, you know, you spend so much time at work and leaving academia is like leaving a relationship. You've devoted so much of your time to this slightly bizarre world where you want to publish papers and you have very specific metrics as to how you measure things. And it is like, a, a, in many ways, it's a kind of, you know, it's a labor of love. You have to give yourself time to readjust to life in a different sector because it, it's just that the, the goals have changed and the, the things that you, that perhaps are valued in the, in the, the, the sector are different than in academia. Thank you very much, Billy. Suha or, or Deborah, what, what was your, your thing you considered the most when you decided to switch jobs? As I mentioned, it's to love what I do. So yeah, it's the passion of my job. And of course, I wanted to transfer the skills I acquired through all my academic you know, career to another job and to learn new skills. So I just wanted to go, you know, out of my comfort zone and explore something new that will develop, you know, my knowledge and my skills and I can apply the knowledge that I acquired during my career. And again, it's just to do something you love. Thank you very much. And Deborah, have you? Again, I'm pretty much going to reiterate what's already been said. You do have to love your job, but I'm also going to be the elephant in the room and say that pay is also a main driver of why you might want to change jobs because I have been a research assistant and doing the same job as like a postdoc or a senior postdoc. You know, it's just how I viewed it. And you obviously want to progress your career. And so one obvious reason to me is just pay progression or your career and just where you want to go. And there's nothing wrong with that. But 
as I said before, as you progress up that career ladder, just as Billy was saying, you know, sometimes you do end up stuck behind a desk for prolonged periods of time, and it's not always what you want. So finding a balance between pay and um, something that you love, being rewarded for your skills, to me, all of those things are really important. Thank you so much. It's a really, really good point to end on there as well. I wanted to thank you all so much for being honest and sharing with us all about your career. I think it's been really eye-opening. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. For more career stories, look for other episodes of our podcast on our page at go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast PDC. Bye.